This is Coda Radio, episode 372, for August 26, 2019. And welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business, software development, and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm joined by everyone's favorite Floridian, Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Welcome back, Mr. Payne. Boy, a lot has happened. You know, the last two episodes, they were pre-recorded, but this one is live once again, and... Not only is it nice to to hear you, but I'm excited to hear what you've thought about all the things going on in the world. Yeah, so I, I you know, of course, a week where we pre-record, everything drops. Why not, right? Sounds like you were having some particular problems with G Suite. Am I right? Pro tip, guys: um, pro- using proprietary solutions that are hosted somewhere else, unless they're for me, then you should definitely buy them. Uh, well, that's a problem if, let's say, your entire business runs on G Suite and Slack, but you only talk to customers on G Suite. And you get you have to go back to like the dark ages of having to explain to people that will actually, can you just like, I don't know, Dropbox this to me? And then you have to like open a Dropbox account because you really need files for a demo. Yeah, it was... So for those who aren't G Suite addicts, um, last week G Suite had an outage for about half a day. It was everything from Gmail to Drive. It was the whole kit and caboodle. Anything that authed with Google. Um, I don't know if it extended to the non-commercial uh, G Suite accounts. I probably did. Why wouldn't it? But it was... Um, I'd like to complain, but honestly, there was no Google chat pings. There was no emails for like four hours. Wes, it was glorious. Oh, that sounds nice. Sometimes you just need a little break. And I suppose that's the, you know, the flip side of the the benefit of they manage everything for you and while it's frustrating when you can't control it, it also means it's it's not on you to fix it. You just get to sit and wait. Yeah, I mean the reality of the situation is it was fine, right? But then that evening of course was chaos responding to emails and going through documents and I'm going to just say that I probably have an over-reliance on G Suite right now. But having said that, I've been using it for over 10 years, and this is maybe the third or fourth outage I've ever experienced. Not so bad, considering. I mean, not ideal, but... All things considered, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So how about you? Were you partying it hard? There's been there's been all kinds of stuff. It was nice to have a little bit of uh, some time away to reflect on all the fun we've had. I've particularly been enjoying the coding challenges, and it sounds like a lot of you guys out there have two, which makes me really happy because, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to sort of actually sit down and review and try out all these new languages. But there's also a lot of insights and a lot of features. It's made me think about what I want and need from a language differently. So we'll get into that a little bit more in the show because you've got a check-in for us I'm particularly excited about, Mike. Ooh, okay. Well, I can't wait to hear why you're excited, but I sure do. And it was a, let me just say, my explanations will be crystal clear. So before we do that, let's, uh, let's set up some feedback. First in our feedback basket today is a letter from Reed. Dear Wes and Mike, I'm a fourth year math PhD student and have always had a hobbyist's interest in coding and software development. While I plan to stay in academia, I realize it's always good to have a backup plan. 
Do either of you have any insights as to how the software development community would feel about someone with a math PhD but no industry coding experience as a job applicant? Any advice would be appreciated. Love the show. You guys make a great duo. Well, thanks much, Reed. I'm curious, you know, maybe you might not have some specific expertise about academia, Mike, but I'm sure you run across many of green coders fresh out of school, and I imagine a lot of those same lessons apply. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny, in the pre-show, I couldn't remember, but I have had um, previous experience of a place who specifically wanted, um, I think, master's degrees in, no, I, I, uh, I hate to be specific, but I, I'm almost sure it was like statistic. They were doing some fintech to use the buzzword things, um, and they would basically be willing to teach you Python. Um, but that that is definitely the rare case for the kind of stuff that I've been doing. It's a lot more, like you said, folks coming in from undergrad or even uh, boot camps or uh, associate programs that might know. Particularly the folks coming from CS undergrads, like a lot, like know or remember a lot more of the you know their Knuth and their math right ran, random algorithmic quiz questions right like um you know although if you are like me and don't have that background uh great books by rob connery the um i think it's called computer science for imposters which basically will teach you all the basic algorithms you need to know we'll throw i'll throw it in the show notes oh that's a that's a great title because I, th- I think i misquoted the title so it was something imposters um but like you know these these young people come out, they're great. You know, they know they're, you know, how do I get through a linked list, which I keep forgetting because the one true language objective C did not have them. Neither does Ruby. I think that speaks a lot for both of them. Oh, don't even lay the closure on me. But like, you know, undergrads, how can we say this nicely, Wes? We'll blow up your Git history so fast, you'll cry. I mean, it just, there's a lot of there's a lot of practical knowledge, um, working in a team, dealing with maybe larger frameworks than you're accustomed to, especially if you're just writing, you know, one-off scripts to accomplish a single task for like a personal use. Um, there's also not always a huge, I think that's changing, but not always a huge emphasis on stuff like testing and reliability in school. Um, what else What else do you see newbies kind of struggle with or just not have a background in if, if they haven't worked in industry? I mean, I could tell you like the the two most common things I've seen are really not getting how important aggressive use of source control is. And I, by aggressive, I mean frequent, frequent commits. Mm, right. Um, and the other thing is maybe a little bit of a cavalier attitude towards legacy. So there was a perfect case a couple years ago that I can think of right off the top of my head. We had this huge iPad app and because of when it was started, and when I say huge, this is enterprise level. This app is effectively a custom tool for this company. And it's just like Mm. they run their business, their shop floormen all have iPads. Right. And this app was in production already for like three or four years. So it was a big old bucket of objective C with a ton of cocoa pods and, you know, Swift had come out, the world had changed, um, CocoaPods kind of, I mean, people still use CocoaPods, but uh, I think at the time, Carthage was becoming more popular. I don't know how familiar you are with Carthage. Oh, not really. It, it's basically just another package management tool. There are reasons that it maybe is a bit more modern than CocoaPods, and actually now Swift does its own things too. But back then, it was really Carthage and CocoaPods. Um, and this... Uh, you know, very well-meaning new developer decided he was going to rip out our cocoa or pod dependencies and try to replace them at Carthage. Well, we had pinned some of our dependencies to specific versions because, of course, 
part of this app was not using automatic reference counting because it was so old. You did say legacy at the start of this. We're talking like circa 2000. When did Swift come out? 2014? So this must have been like 2015. And the, the app started in like 11 or 12. So like there was just a lot of stuff that had gone on in the Cocoa Touch ecosystem since this project was kicked off. Um, so that was a build-breaking experience. Luckily, through the powers of Git, we were able to undo everything. But he he couldn't. He had a I could say he couldn't. He did. He had a hard time, and it was kind of a conversation about. Yes, you're probably right that there are memory leaks in the manual memory code, but they're small enough that they don't matter. And two, the investment required to actually rewrite all of this legacy code and get it to the tested production standard accepted by the end users. Um, you know, level that we need it at just isn't going to be worth it until they release, you know, well, almost like what they're doing now with Swift UI, right? Until there's a major platform paradigm shift where we don't have a choice. Once you already have to rip everything else apart. Yeah. Right. Right. But what about you? What's your, what's your war story? Well, I, I was more, I was more thinking of uh, positive things to go along with uh, your, your war stories here. Of course. Um, and I think there's many developers who kind of shy away from some of the more math oriented things. You know, you go through, you slog through maybe your like couple terms where you do like you do a bunch of graph stuff and prove some theorems. And then, you know, then you're back to like implementing stuff or testing stuff or writing some Java. Uh, and, and that's okay. But I think having familiarity with math, especially if you're going to work on, you know, more complicated algorithmic sort of problems, that can be really handy. So, Reed, you might want to sort of just stay current in in that sort of areas, especially maybe some machine learning areas where more math and computer science start to mix, you could be especially effective there. Also, just start looking at projects and in languages or projects that you're interested at, because one of the one of the skills that you may not get in academia, but that you'll definitely need in industry is being able to just struggle through a bunch of someone else's bad code and understand how to work with it and make whatever changes you might have to, because you, as Mike's talking about, you you often aren't in the best ideal sort of scenarios, but you're still going to have to make it work. There's always going to be legacy, and if you can figure out good tools, get some practice in in learning how to modify that, knowing that most of the stuff you're going to work on, it, it'll likely be supported for years. That'll be useful. Yeah, I like that, and I have to say, I was not a huge mathy person, and in the last couple of years, I've ha- I've started having to go back and be like, okay. Maybe I didn't need to burn through the canoe with quite as much reckless abandon. <laughs> yes. You know, um, Reed, you might also just be interested in some more of the, the functional languages, maybe some, some stuff like Haskell or um, even more esoter- esoteric languages than that. Um, also, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, math in, in school can often be problem solving, and those skills I find translate really well. So focus on that too. Being able to, to break down a problem, model it, and work your way through each of the steps that's a useful skill everywhere. I admire your discipline, sir. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for the email, Reed. Let's move right along. Just a little bit of feedback we got about one of our last episodes over on our subreddit, coderadio.reddit.com. User Ninja Aaron has a little FYI, and I totally should have mentioned this. FYI about wanting interfaces in Python, you basically just want abstract base classes. And I totally should have mentioned that Um User Jam163 notes, I agree with Wes's point about preferring interfaces in abstractions. It seems to me that abstractions targeting interfaces are more reliable than abstractions deriving functionality from base objects. So I think there's some there's some interesting intersections there and probably kind of why I didn't 
think to mention abstract base classes. It's just not the preferred way I have of modeling. And I kind of like the um, polymorphism and other stuff a la carte that you can get when you break those things apart. But Python definitely has that functionality. Thank you guys for pointing it out. That's very useful. Also, as a, as a small little aside here, I've been playing more and more with like some of the later Python 3 releases, and it's really, it's really getting to be a nice language again. I mean, I've always liked Python, but the, the, some of the modernness and some of the newer uh, API styles and libraries that have come around, it's, uh, it's, it's a pleasant place to be. I don't know. Python's like me and Ruby as far as I'm concerned, but we could just keep moving. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a natural segue to our final little bit of feedback today from Dex asking about breaking changes. I developed a niche Python package that has some user following in the network security realm, but I'm at a crossroads. A change I want to make will subtly break scripts that worked in previous or in current versions. The end result of my pending change is good for the project, but I fear it'll ruin the workflow of all the existing users. Other than my GitHub page, I don't know how to query or inform the users of this pending change. What do I do? Well, what do you, what do you think, Mike? Um, you know, this is an interesting question. It comes up a lot. And just step one, asking this question, thinking about it, well, that's good. Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, I mean, I think if you're thinking about it and not just either protecting a legacy forever or making breaking changes willy-nilly, you're already 10 steps ahead of most people. What I have done in the dark old day, eight, uh, days when I used to maintain an Objective-C networking library, yes, it's all Objective-C today, kids. Oh, interesting story. Um, I did briefly, and briefly is defined as, I think, three months, support the non-ARC version of it on a different branch. Um, this is before people were using CocoaPods and fun stuff like that. This is way back in the bad old days. So people would just literally, like the way you got it, it was 10 classes. You just downloaded the, you know... Git submodules. I'm, I hope most of you know about that, right? Ah, yes. Um, but eventually, I was pretty clear that this is a 90-day extension. I'm not going to delete it or break it, but after 90 days, um, you know, I'm not going to support it. That's one way to do it. I can't say that I didn't get any mean emails. I don't know. But remember, you're doing this for free, which is, I think, something we're going to cover in a... Uh, in a future topic here. And, you know, it's really not a service to your users or I'm sure yourself to pin your, your, your code, your library, whatever it is to an older version indefinitely. Right. I, I, see, I, this is one of those hot topics that I'm very hesitant on because I'm pretty aggressive. I'm liking to push things forward when I'm maintaining them. But Wes, what, maybe you're more conservative. Well, you know, it, it always it always sucks when stuff you rely on breaks. Um, so clarity is good. It, it is an interesting question of how to communicate this. You know, it's a little easier if you're working uh, in like a business relationship or in a team relationship where you can kind of sort of force everyone to have a meeting. But uh, that model doesn't work so well in open source necessarily. If you can avoid breaking, I would say do so. Sometimes you can keep legacy functionality around and just sort of mask it or rebuild it on top of newer features. Um, another option might be if you're not already using something, you could consider more, more rigorous use of something like semantic versioning, or another option might be to just, just make a new project, you know, fork this off. If it really is going to be different, if it's going to break things, make a note in the old one, say that you're deprecating support for this existing version, you know, maybe a link in the readme to the new one, and then go happily 
develop not considering anything else over in the new repository and you'll have total freedom. Now, it, it sucks like we're very particular about names and you have to come up with a new name. That's the hardest part. But if it's a new thing, if it's different enough to be breaking, may, maybe it deserves a new name. Yeah, that's a powder keg in itself too. Yeah, it is. It, it's, a, it's a tricky situation, but I, I would say if you, if you can just make a new one, then, then do it. Otherwise, make it clear how people can use their existing stuff. It's probably trickier too that it's a script. Like you don't have, maybe you don't have all the tooling that nice package managers do to pin versions and other stuff that you that your users could rely on. If they're just grabbing the latest code from GitHub, that that will break. I mean, uh, maybe a unpopular anti RMS suggestion here is, you know, there used to be lots of businesses that what they did was like customize open source things for other people. You could totally, if you're getting uh, complaints from someone who has the means or the desire to pay for that say i will um you know say well, i'll do a, a fork for you um but you'll have to pay for the time that the contribution takes that's not unreasonable right people are paid to contribute to open source absolutely uh, another option here too might be just to start the conversation make an issue with the the pending changes and your proposed implementation changes possibly users out there will have some sort of compromise that'll work for everyone but you won't know till you try or maybe someone else could pick it up. Yeah, like Wes was saying, someone else might just pick up the mantle. Exactly. All right. Well, speaking of interesting changes, Mike, I saw you chatting away about some stuff in Rails 6. And it's been a while since I've used Rails, and I haven't used 6 at all. So maybe you can break down what's so interesting over there? Yeah, so Rails 6 is um, you know interesting, like buying a new Subaru. It's a little nicer. Uh, you've got maybe one or two features you're not so sure about, but it's basically the same. You're familiar with the brand and most of the models, and it's just the latest version. I mean, they're pretty keen to tell you about um, Action Cable Testing and Action Mailbox. Meh. I think most people, particularly in Action Mailbox, I think most people are using like SendGrid. Um, action Text is interesting, so you can have like fancy text content bridging it to rails a little better than you could before uh, yeah here listen to this action text brings rich text content and editing to rails so it includes the tricks editor and then it sounds like it's got some like rich text model already made for you in the back end that you can tie it to oh yeah and then any embedded images are automatically stored using active storage and associated so you want to have fancy text uh, it's a one-stop shop uh, interesting um, I mean, there's a few removals. None of them are devastating, although I think the one... So there used to be a thing where you could do config.secrettoken, which is exactly what it sounds like. You could manually... <laughs> right, you could manually just, you know, in plain text, put in your secret token. Uh, that is a deprecation that is going to catch a lot of people with their pants down, I think. But yeah, you should not be doing that in 2019. So I, I think it's a good idea to remove that. Um, and to be clear, that's a straight removal, not a deprecation. In fact, if you've been using RubuCop or any other kind of Rails linter, you have been getting yelled at for using that. Uh, good. Um, my biggest thing is actually that it's including Webpack now in Rails. So Webpack, the JavaScript packaging tool. I'm mixed on this. Um, the applications I tend to develop are pretty much, you know, build the HTML, JavaScript, and all that horrible crap I don't like to deal with on the back end and send it to the front end. Mm, okay. But, you know, Rails does have to compete with the, uh, you know, with the hot new kids. And more and more, especially for, I would to say, consumer-facing things, you, you want to have a little richer JavaScript experience. I mean, we talked a bunch of the languages we've done in the coding challenge, you know, have compiled to JavaScript. God forbid you're using ClojureScript. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope you are. Oh, jeez. Or um, uh, Fable, right? You could be using Fable. Again, if you're using Fable and Rails together, I have to wonder what happened. But sure, you could be. So they listen to like Mirror Universe, uh, Michael Dominic, I think. Yes, that's like when I'm on one of my .NET kicks. I don't want to downplay this release because I think it's actually a pretty important release. Um, There are changes if you're coming from Rails 5. So, you know, it's not nothing, but this isn't like Python 2 to Python 3, the world is ending, right? Or this isn't even like, you know, .NET 4 to .NET Core 2 big. This is more okay, we're deprecating some things you shouldn't have been doing anyway, or we're straight up removing them in some cases. Um, we're adding better integration for... It's almost like adding a blessed, quote-unquote, Railsy way to do rich JavaScript front-ends, which I kind of like, because now I don't have to think about that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, were you using other sort of you know JavaScript compilers, transpilers, pack, packers, uh, minimizers, or did you just have to learn Webpack as a result? Neither. So a lot of the Rails stuff we're doing are uh, backends processing JSON requests from other frontends, either mobile apps or desktop applications. Ah, uh, sure. Um, some of them are written in JavaScript, but you know, like if it's Ionic, you're using whatever comes with Angular, right? So like that's a big difference. That that's actually the best example here. If you're using something like Bootstrap, instead of installing a Bootstrap gem on the backend, you could actually webpack it with Bootstrap and have it all be on the client side. It just kind of gives you an additional layers of, of toolkits that you have access to now. Well, if you're um, you know, a consumer-facing site with heavy traffic, that's definitely going to help you out quite a bit because Rails is not known for being um, you know, particularly performant. Um, and also, you know, that processing is now happening on the browser rather than your server. Right, yeah. So overall, are you finding Rails 6 still to be like a productive environment, a place that you want and trust to build, uh, build applications on top of? Yeah, I mean, Rails is kind of my, I need to get this done and I need it to be solid because this is the kind of thing that's either going to get audited or, you know, it's, um, or, you know, it's my default unless somebody asks me for something else. Or, big or, you need performance, right? Because making Rails fast requires, I know we're going to get email, but Wes is right that it's not that fast. Wes was right. I knew that was getting clicked. I knew it. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. But, I mean, you were asking for it. I really was, wasn't I? Oh, I guess the other thing that the Ruby people are going to be mad, yes, there's better testing support for apt Action Cable. What's the implication there? I kind of think Action Cable is a little overhyped. Um, I'm not familiar with it. Can you break it down? Yeah, so Action Cable basically was a... Ooh, I'm going to pick my words very carefully here. Please do, please do. I would say Action Cable was a way to breach some of the HTML5 modern web functionality that maybe wasn't exactly native to Rails. Uh, One of the side issues with that is testing it is very, or traditionally has been completely challenging. And I can break that down a little better for you. So let's say you're using RSpec for testing, which most people are. Right. Right. Uh, the support for Action Cable was virtually non-existent. Right. There are hundreds of hipsters with gold MacBooks on YouTube who would love to tell you how they've managed to, you know, get 100% test coverage of their active uh, ac- action. Yeah, they've really got to use stop using active and action. <laughs> action Cable code. Action Cable also does, if you're familiar with like ZMQ and PubSub models, you could do that in Action Cable. That's actually what I think is the best use of Action Cable. But other people have done lots of other interesting things, you know, 
chat rooms, things like that. I can't say I've never used it. I can't say it's bad. I can say that these types of things are hard to test because conceptually they're they're hard. they're just you know it, the way most Rails testing has gone is really a byproduct of most people using RSpec, mm-hmm. and RSpec was written in a time when it was you know request response server client right. So now that you're having subscriber publisher relationships you know, your, your metaphors don't match up. I don't even know how to say it without getting into the, like the, the deep of like our spec literally, literally expects there to be a request and a response. Right. It's just hard that the models that they're designed under don't play well together and you don't get all the nice leverage that our spec has in other arenas. And, and like to the R specs team credit, they are fixing that. Like it's going forward. Rails six makes this a lot cleaner to test. I've never felt that this was exactly something you needed to kill yourself over not testing. I don't know. I'm not. I'm less of a TDD jealous than a zealot than most of the people who use Ruby all the time. Right. But I guess if it makes you happy, and you know what, I I mean, don't get me wrong. Now that it's easier, I will be testing my action cable code. Right. Like I'm not saying I'm not going to do it. I'm just saying I. I was never going to be one of these people writing my own little like testing shim because action is just hard. Right. I would just. To me, that was not a good use of resources, but we can move on because we're getting we're getting out of fact and way into opinion here. <laughs> Sometimes that's fun, but let's move on to something that maybe you're a little more excited about, and that's our old friend Rust. I saw an interesting um, interesting video come out over from the Open Source Technology Summit about Intel and their relationship with Rust. I mean, we, we've spoken a lot about Rust for you know some of your applications. Michael, yes, and we've talked a bit about you know running it for all kinds of stuff and where it might be a good fit. Systems programming is obviously one of its design goals, and Intel, well, I mean, they design and run a lot of systems. We haven't talked too much about exactly what they've been working on. Uh, I enjoyed this this talk by their principal engineer Josh Triplett, and I thought maybe we could go over a few of the interesting points therein. Make it rusty. So they kind of start and talk about, you know, the evolutions of systems and, and embedded and lower level programming. And as you know, Mike, it, it's hairy. And sure, we've got C now, but for a long time, you just, you just had to mess with assembly. So systems programming makes many demands on programming languages. And systems programming, because of that, needs both capability as well as safety. So to talk about what I mean by that, I want to go into a little historical advancement in systems programming. So this pattern of advancement applies to many different types of systems, but let's look specifically at BIOS, at firmware, and at bootloaders. So all of these things were originally written very heavily in assembly language, long after other software wasn't, with some extensions, with a small smattering of assembly. But in general, C worked its way down the stack. And now even the BIOS is written almost entirely in C with a little bit of assembly here and there. And that took a surprisingly long time. But it was really only possible because C actually had some features that you know, were worth upgrading for. So in order to make that move, they had to be confident in two different ways to switch from one programming language to another. First of all, the language has to be sufficiently compelling, to have sufficiently compelling features to warrant moving in the first place. It can't just be a little bit better. It has to be substantially better to warrant the effort and engineering time needed to move. 
Now C had a lot of compelling features to offer assembly developers. It provided some degree of type safety, at least enough to not easily mix integers and pointers. It made developers more productive with higher level constructs, with more readable code. But just as important as that, the language also has to provide parity. Developers had to feel confident that C was no less capable than assembly language. And that is a huge point. And I think it's been an, an evolving episode in does Rust have all of that? And I think the whole sort of endeavor here and, and what this talk is about is also just sort of an interesting microcosm that happens all the time, right? We, we do move on to other languages. We change the tools that we use. So it's fun to sort of examine how does that actually happen in practice? I'm curious if you um, if you agree, if you found that, you know, there are some things that Rust had that you liked, but maybe some other areas that it was sort of still advancing when you have been playing with it. You know, I actually think Rust is getting better and better all the time. Um, I, I kind of think Rust is going to be around for a while as a systems programming language, and I think it's going to beat things like Go. It was a little frustrating, like those first couple weeks of using it, how strict the compiler was, if that makes sense. Sure, right, yeah. I mean, that's a big advantage, but you got to learn. It's, a, it's having a conversation with a, a whole new entity, and you got to learn how to talk to it and what it expects. Right, and, it, and it's maybe a little tighter than what I was kind of used to. Yes. I have to say, like, the output has been very performant and very reliable, and it, you know, again, the, the use case or the primary one that is at least the most code is processing STL and OBJ files that I had, um, and it worked great, which was a pretty intensive task that if not for Rust, I probably would have had to do in C++, which I would have found, one, much more error-prone because the non-strict compiler. And I, I I don't see a reason to really hate on Rust. I'm sorry. No, that's great. Josh actually uh, shares some reasons that you and many others, including Intel, are finding it a pleasure to work with. So... The same properties that make Rust work well for Mozilla to build a browser engine also make it appealing for many other companies and projects that are building large, complex systems. So that includes a lot of companies that you already know, many companies that are represented here even. Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Dropbox, Chef, Fastly, Baidu, a huge number of companies beyond that. You can find a long list online, and hundreds of companies are using it to build all sorts of different software. There's a lot more to it than that. So Rust actually has a long and interesting history. It was started four years ago today, in fact. This is the fourth anniversary of Rust 1.0, the stable release. It was started years before that. And beyond that, for those last four years, it's been the most loved language on Stack Overflow. People always say, well, I've started using it, and I want to keep using it. It has the most loyalty in that way. Beyond that, there are a lot of published security studies about the properties that Rust provides. This isn't just an, a thing that they advocate as, oh, you should use it because it has these properties. There was a study from Microsoft saying that 70% of security bugs are memory safety issues of some kind, and exactly the same type of issues that Rust fixes. And a number of developers from Microsoft expressed interest in driving those types of security fixes using Rust. Mozilla did a study that showed that if they'd written one component of Firefox in Rust from the beginning, they'd have avoided 73% of its historical security issues. They went back and looked at every CVE in that component and said, which of them would still have existed and which of them were fixed by writing it in Rust? Well, those are some pretty decent numbers, I would say. 
Yeah, I would say that's almost okay, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But of course, that doesn't mean everything is working, especially if you're doing, you know, low-level stuff or maybe you need to produce super duper optimized bytecode and people at Intel do have some of those needs from time to time. Um I thought it was interesting, you know, the talk kind of ends after going into more of the history of Rust and, and some of the nitty-gritty technical stuff. Just ends on a, on a good summary of all the stuff that Intel's trying to work on to make that open source ecosystem better for them and for others. I want to give a summary of what we're trying to work on. We need full parity with C to support the long tail of system software, and we have a Rust working group working towards that goal. And every feature that we add covers more of the space of systems programming. We want to make sure that all developers have a choice of languages, not just app developers, but systems programmers as well. And nobody is stuck with only one language that will do what they need. So we want to make sure that no matter what language you're using, C or Rust or anything else, that it runs best on Intel hardware and that it gives you access to the full capabilities of your hardware. And we would love to have your feedback to help drive what C features that we add to Rust next. So please do get in touch if you want to do systems programming in higher level languages. And please, please, please don't buy AMD. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, of course, you know, you got you to gotta sneak that little sales pitch in there. Yeah, it just, no, but that, that's pretty interesting. I mean, if you are, on, you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with Intel wanting to support your project. Right. And, you know, it's it just kind of interesting to see because because this is all in, in the open and Rust has done a good job of having, you know, a lot of the language evolution done in a particularly transparent way, I would say. You know, we get to sit here and watch and talk about it. Now, this is an example of open source work being done by Intel, obviously a very large corporation. But Mike, you were pretty fired up about an article over in Wired by Keith Negley that reminds us that that's not always the case. Yeah, so uh, I am an old man, so I, I subscribe to a number of print magazines, including Wired. Oh, look at you. You got the physical thing right there in your hands. Damn right. And uh, they had this article, this uh, this last issue, about the tragedy of commons in FOSS, right? And damn, it was heartbreaking. All these stories, uh, the most telling one was of the open SSL team barely making a few thousand dollars a year. Right. I mean, this was kind of a reminder of what what, what the situation was like before Heartbleed. Right, during Heartbleed. And just how, while it is absolutely true that, you know, the open source community can do great things, it's also true that, you know, I, I wouldn't even say corporate America, right? Like corporate, I don't know, federation, like the Star Trek Federation, are really leveraging the crap out of the community here. Right. And on, I mean, on one side of that, that's kind of good and expected because that's, you know, you're putting it out there in the open to be used. But it, it sort of had, you know, hidden externalities, hidden reliances that we're not always doing a proper job of maintaining. And in the long run, that's not good for the businesses that rely on it or the people trying to make the software. Yeah, it's, you know, I more put this in for this week to kind of throw it out there to the audience and maybe get some feedback for next week. What do we think of this, you know, companies making millions and billions of dollars off open source projects where the maintainers are just hacking on at nights and weekends and, you know, not making anything? I mean, the best case he had, uh, the author, was someone who ran a software consultancy, but they never even, you know, they never made a million of revenue. Meanwhile, some of the biggest Fortune 500s in the world depended on their project. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder too, it's, it seems like, I don't know if you'd agree that 
more uh, mainstream culture reporters, uh, news organizations sort of discovered open source. And I think our the wider world is still trying to make sense of it too. And in this case, it's kind of nice because it, it points out some things that we don't talk about probably often enough. Yeah, I think Heartbleed in particular um, kind of took off some blinders for for the mainstream. Uh, I would even say the mainstream tech press, right? So the tech press was not necessarily, you know, even in the development kind of Linuxy, Fossey community. Um, I don't know. Again, I am not going to jump into the GPL versus BSD debate here, but I will say that it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I think we've seen this in the Linux world too, where some projects, notably this year, I, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but I'm sure you do, have been shutting down or switching maintainership just because of, you know, it's not worth it, right? The maintainers are getting a little older, maybe they have families, whatever, and they, they just can't do this. Right. I mean, you know, life life gets in the way sometimes. And if we don't have a robust base of support to either let that continue or other people to, you know, sort of continue the work, well, we're going to lose things that we care about or find useful. One of the most haterade cases of this, I think, for our, for our community at JB is going to be, remember, Mac is Darwin BSD. I mean, yes, they've mutated it quite a lot, but underneath it's uh, the mock kernel running Darwin. They've done a lot to it, granted. Uh, there used to be FOSS Darwin BSD, like, alternatives yeah right and there's a little show called bsd now just saying bsdnow.tv if you'd like to check that out it is um a place to be for all things bsd where they all run windows 7 oops sorry uh i mean sometimes sometimes people got to run windows mike you're one to talk oh i know i know next best linux distro windows 10 <laughs> Now, if you're all fired up like I am about what Mike just said, please do leave us feedback. You can do that either over at our subreddit, coderradio.reddit.com, or just go to coder.show directly on coder.show slash contact, and we've got a handy-dandy little form that sends us an email. Now, Mike, let's move right along. There's no avoiding it. It's time for our language check-in. This week, it's your turn, and you've been checking out Crystal. It's so shiny. I think it's kind of perfect to talk about because we've just been, you know, we've just been talking about systems programming and Rust. And hey, one of Crystal's stated language goals is be able to call C code by writing bindings in pure Crystal. What? Yeah. But before we get there, tell me more. How's it been? What's it like? And is it as cool as the little spinning Crystal on their homepage makes it look? All right. So I have to give it to the Crystal team. They know how to brand things. First of all, their website is just amazing. Second of all, their tagline, fast to see, slick as Ruby. Let's just drop our mics right now. Oh boy, yeah, wow. So Crystal could trick you on a cursory look and have you think you're writing Ruby. Yeah, look at this. Server equals HTTP server dot news, and then like the whole do block right from Ruby. What's going on? It is by design meant to be very syntactically and in a general methodology and pattern sort of way like Ruby. But there's there's a couple big differences. Like, this is kind of, well, the there's let's get the obvious ones right out of the way here, right? So first off, it is a static language. Static typing, baby. Ah, so that's a big difference from Ruby right away. That's a big difference. Now, it goes out of its way not to slap you in the face with that. So most of the time, you don't need to manually declare the types. It figures it out. Ah, so it's a, it's a modern type language with nice, handy inference to help you out so that most of the time, you can just kind of not, not forget about it, but not have to annotate every last little thing. Right, but it doesn't force it 
as though it were a traditional static type language. Excellent. So it infers it the first time, and then after that, it just assumes you know what you're doing. Um, and if it doesn't at compile time, it fails. Which, by the way, unlike Ruby, it compiles. Now, I know there are weird implementations of Ruby that people have run through compilers. but Sure, of course. We're talking mainline Ruby here, right? Um, yeah, it compiles, and you're running binaries that are compiling to your native platform, which means you have to care about your native platform. Mm, yeah, that's a big difference right there. It's not just this high-level interpreted language anymore. But of course, as we all know, compiled languages are in general faster than their interpreted equivalents, right? Which makes sense if you understand what the compiler actually does. So that's where it gets a lot of its speed. Oh, and also it can consume C directly. So yay. That is cool. Part of the static typing, I noticed that they've got nice null handling. All types are non-nillable, and nillable variables are represented separately as a union between that type and nil. So, you know, they've got some nice modern handling there. Right. Huge departure from Ruby where, hey, you can throw nil around like it's candy. And I I find that that's less of a problem. You know, I I don't, in my own work with Ruby anyway, I don't find nil to be the sort of problem that null is in some Java code bases, but still, this is nice to have. More and more, I'm liking things to be a bit stricter on the whole null, nil front. Um, I don't mind it. In some of my reading around the forums and like asking people, some people had issues with that. I I don't understand why. I kind of don't think like your way of validating your logic should be checking for nil, but that's just me. <laughs> right. I, not, I can't say I've never done it. I mean, that's how Objective-C, that was a very common pattern, but it's, it's not, uh, you know, with age comes wisdom. A couple things I don't like before we get into some, some love here. Yeah, okay, yeah. So with static typing comes a lot of safety. Um, you do lose some of the flexibility that you have in Ruby. Again, Crystal is its own language. It's just meant to look like Ruby, not, you know, it's not a derivative of Ruby. It's not trying to be derivative. It's not trying to be compatible. Yeah. But like there, the dot each iterator does not do what you would like it to do in Ruby. It is actually much more complex. Oh, you have to know what your collection is going in where Ruby, you can basically iterate over a ham sandwich. There's a whole um, enumerable module in Ruby that everything has. Yeah. Um, I think this is good, although people who've been listening a long time know I was very upset when Swift removed it. Um, Yeah, you don't need for loops. You know what? I know they're like CompSci 100. Everybody has to learn for loops. You don't need for loops. Uh, So Crystal's down with that. You don't get no for loops. So if you want to iterate over a collection, you actually have to create the right type of collection and iterate over it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. That's um, That'll be different for some people that maybe have not worked with such a low-level language. But I, I'm going to just like, again, like many of the things in Rust, the enforcement of just a little extra discipline actually can protect you from just like a wide array of common errors, right? See what I did there? Iteration mentioned in an array. Just like that. <laughs> yes. But then we get into what I can only describe as don't call me Ruby gems shards. Shards are exactly what you think they are. They are the equivalent of Ruby gems. Oh, that's a cute name, right? They work differently because it's uh, compiled, but you really don't care. It's a command. You run on the command line, you install it. It gives you dependencies. I don't really, I mean, they're doing great work with it, but it's, you know, it's just like every package manager for every language, right? I'm kind of what the, the check these days, I think is like, did, did they mess it up, right? Did you get right. this wrong? It works fine. Um, yeah, you're right. They didn't mess it up. It's boring. We just move on. Uh, fibers, which are their concurrency model. 
are interesting and complex. And another reminder that this is a compiled language running on native code <laughs> and that you really have to care about what platform you're on and you have to know what you're doing. Again, I'm going to draw the parallel to Rust. Um, you can do great concurrency in Rust, but you have to really know what you're doing. I also think fibers are probably, other than the native performance, one of the primary reasons one would use Crystal if you have a highly concurrent uh, workload, which lots of things are these days, right? In our multi-threaded, multi-GPU, sorry, not multi, well, really multi-CPU world, yeah. Uh, macros. So macros are evil and wrong, just like monkey patching and DSLs are Ruby. Don't do it. You know, I was intrigued. You don't see um, this kind of style of macro in all statically typed languages. I mean, it's it, it reminds me a little bit of the Glisp style macros almost. Did you did you write one? Did you play with that at all? I did. I, I so there was an example of someone who was very annoyed. I didn't put the blog post in the in the uh, doc because I felt the tone was a, a little too snarky. Which, if you've listened to the show, tells you a lot. Um, yeah, so someone was really mad and wrote a macro to add four loops back. <laughs> of course. It's it's bad. We call this monkey patching in Ruby, right? Um, I think there's a proper name, but this kind of the mean slang name. No, I think it is really called monkey patching the docs now. Uh, somebody can look it up and comment on Reddit. Basically, you can add functionality to the language. Great for DSLs, right? That's what everybody says. What you usually see is not DSLs, but people adding crap that's bad. Um, I have done it. I don't think you should do it. I understand why Crystal has it as a... By the way, this language is not even 1.0 yet. So if you're thinking of like popping this out in prod, I I saw there's some companies who are using it. I have my general thou shalt be 1.0 unless it's a really special case rule. So for me, I would not use this in production right now. Totally reasonable. Um, But... I definitely get why such a young language would need something like macros because I'm sure there are plenty of the shops and individual developers using this that simply wouldn't use it if they couldn't add on their own functionality. Right. That's the thing, right? Like macros enable you to sort of expand the language. Um, You're right if you have, I think some of the particular problems in Ruby with monkey patching is that it is easily used for very widespread things, right? You can just end up adding these methods that show up on objects everywhere <laughs> practically um it seems like macros are best used at least in my experience for very limited cases yeah stuff where you you know it's obvious that you're doing some sort of complicated transformation here it is neat that basically in in crystal macros are just methods that receive ast nodes at compile time and then produce code that gets pasted right back so it's it's much like macros you might be familiar with from other languages and that's cool you know macros are kind of like absinthe you can um you can have a little bit, but you really got that's like a once a year thing. Yeah, yeah, once a, once in a while. So one thing that looks a little bit similar to Ruby is in Crystal, everything is in objects, right? And and basically they say the things you can know about it is that it has a type and it can respond to some methods, and that that's it. Yeah, I personally like that, but I like Ruby. If you don't like that, then you won't like it here either. Um, personally, I think that makes reasoning about your code very very. I won't say simple, but it, it kind of gives you a just like a set of rules that you can follow and, and reason through. Yeah. Yeah. Constrains the interface and API that you're using to talk between all these things. But I definitely understand why there's a whole set of people who wouldn't like that kind of thing. I, I'm not sure how much you would or wouldn't like this. I'm very curious. 
Um, for me, this is when this hits 1.0, I would probably use this where I might use Rust, right? As a more performant augmentation to a large scale application written in Ruby. I see. Having said that, I'm really enjoying using Rust for that. I hate to say it, and I could change my mind later because, yay. I don't see me picking this up. And, I, and, and obviously my 1.0 rule, I, I, I won't pick it up now. Right, right. Let's say, yeah, let's say it was ready to go. You were, you were comfortable with its stability. But I wouldn't discourage anybody, especially if you're like just hacking for fun or like doing like a toy program for yourself. Um, I mean, I, honestly, the only thing I really don't like is macros, but lots of languages that I do like have it, i.e. Ruby. And I think I just, you know, I just don't use it because I don't like it. So. And one thing I noticed that was interesting just looking at it, um, if you go take a peek at their GitHub, I think as a consequence of having macros, most of Crystal is implemented in Crystal at this point, you know? Um, and you don't need macros for that sort of thing, but it can make it very, you know, it can make it easy because you can start with a few special primitives and sort of build the language upon itself from there. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to hit the macro thing too hard because like in reality, if I for some reason decided to use this, I'm sure I would eventually have to write some macros for myself too, so... I'd be curious how you might compare it to, to Go as well, because it seems like right now the advantages or at least things you might be interested in as compared to Rust would be the, you know, the, the really strong concurrency model. I know Rust has been working on like async await sort of style stuff, and there's various different proposals out there, but Crystal is up front. Like, look, we got, we got fibers, we've got green threads, have at it. Um, and it might not be suitable to target exactly as all the low-level things, or at least right now, you know, I'm thinking stuff without a runtime or OS-level stuff that Rust can also sort of play at but if you want uh, a tight little you know static executable reasonably fast efficient pretty low level stuff it seems like this would be competing with go as well in that regard yeah i could see that is the argument then that you just get a syntax that maybe you, you like more well i you know I, I would be maybe a little more um optimistic than that i mean i think you know not many people were doing a whole lot of ruby until rails came along mm. Yeah. Having said that, I don't think this is a great thing for the type of application you would write in Rails. No, no, probably not, right? It needs, it's a little, little lower level than that. But I could see something coming along where, you know, there's a lot. There's not a lot of people use, well, I won't say not a lot, but Erlang is not the, one of the biggest languages out there. But there are domains where it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that's the other thing this would seem to be sort of targeting, right? I mean, you, you tried Elixir to, to kick off this whole language challenge, and they have they have similar concurrency models here. And they both got that Ruby, yeah, that Ruby DNA almost. Now, I know there's been some interest over in the Erlang um, world, because you can write, you know, basically extensions out from the Erlang VM, so you can implement sort of stuff that needs to be faster, lower level things. But there's always the risk, at least when they're implemented classically in C, of that ruining a lot of your safety, right? When you build it on their nice Beam VM, you get all this nice managed safety for you. But if your C extension then like crashes the whole thing, well, that won't work. So there's been some interest in using Rust. I wonder, I wonder how Crystal might work in the same regard. As always, Rust is the right answer. <laughs> oh, Mike. So Wes, um, we forgot to mention on the last recording, you are doing a challenge. Yeah. Now, what have you picked for me? Because you've given a great report here on Crystal. I might just have to play with it myself as an aside because I'm I'm curious. It's got me interested. But I I need a language. I need I need something to be working on. So you know what I I had a language in mind, but I think you've actually changed my mind. Oh, what? I don't think we've done Go yet, have we? Didn't you do Go? Did I, oh I did do Go, didn't I? But I haven't. Now we did get some. We did get some. Um, there was a feedback item I saw somewhere. Maybe it was on. Maybe it was on Reddit. Uh, someone suggested I try Julia. That might be interesting. 
That's a language I've been looking at, but have not actually played with. I mean, I think you'll hate it. So that's uh, part of the... Perfect. All right. Do you want to do Julia? Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, what, uh, we must be close to seven by now. Yeah, probably. But this is fun. So, you know. All right. So, and what what for me next? So I have two weeks to do it. Mm, mm, that's a good question, Mike. I don't, I don't know. I might, have, I might have to think about that a little bit. Maybe, maybe, we'll, uh, maybe we'll send out a tweet about that later this week once we've decided. Well, Mike, thank you for a very interesting language report. And, you know, it's, it's great to be doing the show live with you again. We'll be here doing the show live like we do almost every week. Next week, you can join too. Head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That will list the live times of this show and all the other shows that we do live. If you want more Coder Radio, well, head on over to coder.show. That has the whole back catalog. And if that's not enough, jupiterbroadcasting.com has all the other fine shows, including, you know, we've got some new stuff going on over in our extras feed. If you haven't heard, if you haven't checked it out, but maybe you've already caught up on all the JB content for the week and need a little bit more, extras.show. Go check out the latest Brunch with Brent. I think you'll find it's very enjoyable. Mike, if they want more of you, well, uh, you're over on Twitter. What's your handle? That's at Dumanuku on Twitter. I'm there, too, at West Payne. And you can find the whole network sending out notifications about all the latest and greatest shows at Jupiter Signal. Thank you all so much for joining us. We'll see you right back here next week.